Hey guys, welcome to the first official episode of Autonomish, a podcast about the future of accountability and regulation for autonomish systems. In this episode, I really want to talk to you about the person who first coined that term. My name is Jonathan Zittrain, and in my recent work, I've been a bit of a pessimist. So I thought this morning I would try to be the optimist and give reason to hope for the future of the internet by drawing upon its present. One night last year, I saw an article come up in my feed called Harvard Law School and MIT Media Lab Launch Innovative Course on Law and Regulation in the Digital World. For the first time ever, Harvard Law School and the MIT Media Lab had collaborated to host a January term course in the Harvard Berkman Klein Center called Internet and Society, the Technologies and Politics of Control, dedicated to understanding the legal and technical dynamics of the digital world. The Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, where the course was being run out of, is a center that focuses on exploring cyberspace, sharing in its study, and pioneering in its development. And Jonathan Zittrain had co-founded the center in 1998. So in a kind of spur of the moment decision, I decided to shoot him an email in which I gave a brief description of who I was, why I was interested in these questions, and whether or not I could participate in this course, whether or not I could just sit in on it. This course was one of the most exciting instances of real discourse, facilitated between technically and legally minded thinkers. To quote one of my favorite musicals, I wanted to be in the room where it happens. A couple days went by, and I didn't really give the idea much thought after that. But eventually, I got an email back. Professor Zittrain wrote back to me and said that although the course had already been filled up and they wouldn't be offering it for the next semester, he would be willing to participate in a brief interview. Having someone like Professor Zittrain weigh in on this issue of defining and governing artificial intelligence is especially significant because he is not only at the forefront of the research and the intersection of artificial intelligence and law, but he devotes his time to connecting members of those fields so that their discourse can lead to new research and new questions about the social and ethical implications of artificial intelligence. His work serves as a model for the kinds of interdisciplinary relationships and discussions that need to be embodied in any discussion of the ethics and governance of AI. So without further ado, here is that conversation. So the, the first question I want to pose to you is, as someone who is at the forefront of exploring these questions in the governance of artificial intelligence, what does the landscape look like for, for artificial intelligence research? and who are the biggest players and how are they collaborating? Well, first I should say we actually started in 1998 at oh a time goodness. when anything a center for internet and society seemed really narrow. Like maybe we should say law and technology just in case sort of thing. Um, and the internet took off uh, just as we did. And uh, our idea was to study the implications of its growth on people, on systems, in ways that were lucid, understandable, and that related to policy without being too mincing, without getting into, well, you know, here doctrinally is what might be legal and not, 
uh, and maybe someday somebody should change the law. It's more really thinking through what leads to the sort of best outcomes in the public interest, however we define it, and getting a big stable of people with varying degrees of um, views about the public interest to talk about it. And it's funny because now if you figure that was 97, 98, and now we are 20 years later, 2017, 2018, um, thinking about artificial intelligence doesn't feel discontinuous to me. It doesn't feel like it's uh, a totally different zone. We Mm -hmm. may at last have outgrown Internet and Society as a title. Right. But it's really about the ways in which people relate to one another, try to control one another or Mm -hmm. influence one another through code as well as through law or marketplace or norms, as my colleague Larry Lessig liked to say in 1998 when he wrote his book about this on Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace. Um, And if you think of AI, as I do, less in its technical definition and more as suddenly, it seems, the mainstream proliferation of tightly coupled autonomous systems, kind of autonomous, learn as they go so that even the people who made them are going to be less in a position to predict how they'll act. Mm. It's an era where it's this weird combination of not knowing what to expect from our technology while also having it be decent enough that it can predict things that previously weren't predicted, make associations that previously weren't makeable. Mm -hmm. So you have both kind of a lack of control, a lot of surprises, but also a real presence of control and knowledge, at least among those who have the data and have the algorithms. And that uh, leads to a whole bunch of questions that I do think if one has studied the development of the internet over a period of years, there's a lot of like, you know, once again with feeling on this stuff. Anyway, that's a rather long answer to your question. The next question I asked was more directed towards the specific topic of sentencing algorithms. Essentially, tools that judges or other law enforcement officials use in the criminal justice system to predict the likelihood of a person recidivating or committing future crimes after being released from prison. This is a subset of AI systems I'd been interested in for a long time. The main reason being that, for the most part, algorithms like these run on machine learning principles, meaning that the algorithm learns how to make future decisions based on the data we feed into it. And although that technically sounds convenient, If we do not retrain these algorithms in such a way that their decision-making does not result in unforeseen consequences, these algorithms can make decisions about parole or bail or even how long someone's initial prison sentence is without us knowing how it reached those conclusions. In other words, if an algorithm is fed a data point on the number of a person's previous arrests, that number may seem objective, But we are becoming increasingly aware of the fact that certain neighborhoods are policed far more than others. And so rather than decisions about parole being made in an objective and fair way, it inevitably becomes about making judgments based on factors that are out of people's control. Race, where they grew up. And not to mention the fact that these algorithms are often proprietary, meaning that given that they were created by a private company, they're considered intellectual property. And therefore, we don't even know what variables are being used to lead to those decisions. So the question is this. When we think about the ethics and governance of artificial intelligence, who do we hold accountable? 
Who do we hold accountable in this scenario for the decisions made by sentencing and often proprietary algorithms? Well, until we replace the judges themselves, we'd like to tell ourselves the judges are responsible. They're going to be imposing the bail conditions or maybe a parole board will be figuring out whether it's time for parole. Um, And that will vary state by state. But in some ways that is kind of too pat an answer because if you present a judge with a recommendation that a expensive and impressive looking piece of software spat out that just says risk score 10 you know we've added up all the numbers and this person should not be let out it would take quite a judge to be like you know i'm going to disagree with that Mm -hmm. uh it, it means for the judge well i can be relieved a little bit because now i've got something that's scientific offering me up an answer and while i technically ratify it so i i am an extra step Mm. it may well be that judges would just get in the habit of doing it um now there we're talking about risk assessments that are not meant to substitute for judges in the sense of predicting what a judge would do and trying to emulate it but really just trying to answer an empirical question will this person commit a crime again maybe more exactly will they be arrested again Mm -hmm. or will they be convicted again and if so let's save them the trouble and just keep them keep them in jail um i think it is possible to introduce these systems in ways that actually have them quite helpful to the current system because it's not like the current system is so great right if judges had an opportunity not to just sort of use their spidey sense which they may not have had a whole lot of opportunity to see if it was ever any good they just keep on doing it every wednesday (laughs) but instead to get a sense from the software, like maybe they make their own guess and the software says, you know, interesting you should say that because this is the kind of person we would rate a high risk and here's why. And usually those are knowable factors. A lot of these software uh, uh, being offered today by private companies, which treat as a trade secret, their formula, as best we can tell, it's not like they're that sophisticated from an AI point of view. They're not like we took the person's credit card receipts and their metro stops and divided it by, um, you know, what kind of hat they like to wear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here's the answer through repetitive machine learning right. of those factors relating to did they ever get arrested again. But rather, um, we added three points if they'd been arrested before. We added four points if on the questionnaire they said that more than three friends have been arrested for crimes. Mm -hmm. By the way, interesting kind of guilt by association, which we usually think of as not a fair way of doing guilt. Um, So to the extent that it's transparent, it lets a judge know how much to lean on it. Mm -hmm. I think it's possible even for these programs themselves to offer up so-called error bars, actually say, like, this is how certain we are. It's not just this is the number, but this is how much we have confidence in the number and have ways of explaining the basis for it, Mm -hmm. and then testing them and auditing them later. In my ideal, the jurisdictions themselves would build the code and use their own data rather than relying on an outside private vendor and share with one another some of their systems. And that could be a way of actually trying to reduce bias, whether the bias of the judge, who might be grateful to be told, hey, there's a certain pattern in your rulings you might want to reflect upon, but also there may be bias in the system itself. If somebody is rearrested for reasons that don't have to do with whether they're a criminal mm-hmm. and there's a pattern to those rearrests, then of course any good software will pick up on the pattern and just say, yeah, this person is likely to be arrested again, but that may not actually capture 
whether they're a criminal. And there are ways, I think, to more thoughtfully code stuff to try to avoid those issues. Um, so you recently appeared in um, a panel discussion hosted by the Berkman Klein Center called um, Programming the Future of AI, Ethics, Governance, and Justice. I wanted to talk about the point that um, Cynthia, Dor- uh, Cynthia Dork and Margot Seltzer, both professors of computer science at Harvard, um, they brought up this issue of explainability in algorithmic models and how algorithms that are perhaps uninterpretable can still output accurate results. Um, but you know, on the on the other side of that issue, Christopher Griffin, someone who is uh, the head of Art- Harvard's Access to Justice Lab, representing more of um, the legal realm in this question, he brought up the concern of actionable recommendations and how even if algorithms can output accurate results, um, because some of them are uninterpretable, how do state officials and judges? differentiate between a risk score of two, three, and so on. Um, So from your perspective, how do we establish communication between these two fields? Well, it would be nice to have, on the level of values, some discussion and then maybe even agreement over when a recommendation or a prediction that the system making cannot explain when, if ever, that's acceptable in the legal process. And I wouldn't rule it out entirely. Mm -hmm. There may be ways to say, look, we're not sure how it knows. It's not sure how it knows, but it knows. And every time we've tested it, it's never been wrong. And at that point, depending on what you're trying to assess, Mm -hmm. that may be a very useful thing. Like maybe there's something that the IRS uses to predict whether to audit a tax return. And it's just, it always finds the ones that once audited turn out to be uh, cheating. And if you audit ones that it thinks aren't cheating, they're not cheating. If you just kept doing that and kept testing it, it's not clear that you would be that upset if the algorithm were used to use the limited resources of the IRS to focus it on those who are likely to be cheating on their taxes. But for a whole other raft of reasons, if we ever thought there were ways in which algorithms could be right for the wrong reasons, again, like a rearrest of somebody, if not, if, if, if it were a form of harassment and the system actually could predict the harassment was going to happen and then would simply say, there's a rearrest and therefore you shouldn't right. let them out and get arrested again, that would be an example of something right for the wrong reasons. And only if it's interpretable might you be in a position to easily pick that up. The other prospect I think I raised at the panel, uh, and it's worth mentioning here, is something written up really nicely by my colleague David Weinberger at the Brooklyn Klein Center, which is broaching the possibility that we may not know the answer to this yet, that reality itself may have relationships out in the physics of itself that don't boil down nicely to a simple equation. Mm. Pretty much when we think, ah, we finally got a theory of X, It's that we found a formula for X, and there's a certain basic relationship. And if you don't understand the relationship, everything really is complicated. If you look at uh, an orrery from the 16th century, an orrery being uh, one of those things with the planets that rotate, and you turn the crank, and it makes everything. The more ambitious the orrery, it's trying to get like a comet in there, too. 
if you don't have a theory of it, it's just, oh my god, these gears just have to somehow know all these random things happen all at once. Right. Especially if your theory is that like the Earth's in the middle, it's really bad equations. But it appears to so often turn out that once you get the equations right, they're really elegant and simple. But that may also be because the only theories that humans are capable of constructing are ones that we find elegant and simple. If uh, a system, an electronic system, could come up with huge amounts of inputs and sift them enough to genuinely discover relationships for which no explanation is available other than a bunch of, well, you know, like astrology, uh, which maybe I shouldn't hazard a guess about, but I understand there's a lot of exceptions and exceptions to exceptions, and then if this, right. by the way, if it's a Wednesday, you know, you can do that, and then at the end, you don't feel like you've had it explained to you. Um, and if we, if it turns out reality has relationships that are that way, really complicated and not boiled downable, we have to ask ourselves how much we want to be using systems that then become oracular. We just have to trust them, and we don't know why and it's a weird form of learning we're not learning how something works anymore we're just getting answers from an oracle from like a little slot machine or something um that strikes me as a deep problem that the criminal justice system hasn't had to confront yet mm -hmm. the usual answer to your question is you can build a system that can explain itself it may not ultimately be as accurate as the ones that can't but you could trade off a little accuracy for explainability this next and final question refers to a scenario I decided to ask everyone I talked to about, about their view on the future of AI and society, and whether or not they believe our future together will be prosperous, or if it will be as dystopian and hopeless as the stories we're often told in the realm of science fiction. The final question I, I wanted to ask you about was um, about two quotes from Marvin Minsky, the founder of MIT's Media Lab. So. In regard to the two different futures we have with artificial intelligence, um, he has said that, will robots inherit the earth? Yes, but they will be our children. Um, but the other quote that he has is a, is a little bit more harrowing, and it's that we would be lucky if the robots kept us as pets. So I, you know, I'm wondering, from your, from your point of view, with the research that you have at this moment, which direction do you think we're heading in? <laughs> well, I would never want to uh, try to parse uh, somebody as uh, prominent as Marvin Minsky was. Uh, I mean, he really he started that AI lab back in the day before mm -hmm. anybody was really thinking that much about it. Uh, I worry less about they become so smart as general artificial intelligences that, you know, boy, you can't out-argue them. They just, they know what's going on and they're shaping the world now and we are but their pets. I don't really worry about that so much for a number of reasons, but mm -hmm. rather, I think one of the things demonstrated early in Minsky's time, we're talking late 60s, early 70s, Joseph right. Weizenbaum at CMU and others, demonstrated how readily we're willing, once it's like, oh, the computer said so, I'm in that we're willing to make ourselves pets even when the computer has not evinced any interest in being the owner. Um, there is this desire sometimes to trust the computer, to trust uh, something that looks official. And 
it was what made Joseph Weizenbaum quit the field with some disgust. He had made one of the first chatbots, Eliza. Eliza was fine. It wasn't great, but it was good enough that people were really using it. And he was like, wait a minute now. Like, Eliza isn't real. Um, and the ways in which it's possible for marketplaces in particular, looking to sell us something or grab our attention for something, to just keep generating stuff that finally connects with a particular set of human psyches in a way that really draws us in, even though we don't know why and they don't either. It's what leads to some bizarre web ads that like just don't add up, but you still click on them. Um, I was just reading an article by a person horrified to have found hundreds of thousands of videos on YouTube aimed at infants and at babies and children that are truly computer-generated, they're random, um, some of them are truly like disturbing, but they rack up views because they just happen to be the right combination of weird stuff happening on a screen. And there's uh, very little attention given to just that slippery slope of automation of what I had called before tightly coupled systems. So in that sense, I think Minsky's warning could be quite dire, but it's really a way of thinking um, there were two kind of major dystopias posed in uh, literature, uh, I think more post-war literature. You have uh, 1984 from George Orwell, mm -hmm. and you have Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And Orwell ultimately says, is what you're afraid of is going to kill you. <laughs> and what Huxley says is what you love is going to kill you, mm -hmm. kill your spirit. And I think I'm more in the Huxley camp than the Orwell camp. So if you take it as a Ganapis' Pets as an Orwellian thing, I don't get that exercise. But when you think of it as, we will willingly ask for it, now I'm nervous. Professor Zetrain is not just a professor of computer science and law, although he is on the cutting edge of research connecting those two fields. So I cannot attempt to classify his role into any one category. By trade, he is someone who studies the intersection of law and computer science and the social and ethical implications of technology more broadly, but his work also serves to bridge the gap between those different fields and helps people from the fields of computer science and law and many other fields not specifically falling into those categories speak the same language to have real, impactful conversations. After I'd finished asking my questions, I thought that the interview had pretty much ended. But Professor Zetrain added one more thing. That's great. And uh, as I may have mentioned, the format of our class next spring is not, as it was last year, all in winter term, a, a mm -hmm. stack of days. So it makes it particularly hard to consider yeah. auditing. But we have this opening weekend that we're calling, uh, for reasons that elude me, even though I'm the one who named it Coachella, uh, we basically have a three-day weekend in early February where we're going to do a kind of immersive intro to the course. If there were some fitting way for you to participate in that, I think we might be quite open to that. So I don't know. You should see if that would interest you. And if not, we're going to do this course again, and there will be other If I was going to attempt to even think about a hypothetical regulatory agency with the power to establish guidelines and set standards for the proliferation of artificial intelligence systems, autonomous systems, what better place to look for them than at MIT? 
This institution would be one of the first places to go for what I wanted to do. So I went. Or something too. Yeah. I think we could easily try to arrange something like that. Well, thank you so much. I will definitely look into that. Great. So, All right. Um, thank you so much. You're really welcome. Pleased to meet you. Okay, pleased to meet you too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm back!